Oh, are there any four scarier words uh, to text somebody or to receive somebody from somebody than the words, we need to talk? I mean, just as you hear that, you're, it already sends shivers in your spine of, of, you know there's probably somebody who should send you that text, and you're scared of that already. Um, there's somebody you need to send that text to, but you haven't. And why? Why is it that we avoid those things? Uh, the reality, though, is, do you turn me down just a little bit, somewhere echo or something. Uh, the reality of it, though, is the health of your family, the health of your marriage, uh, the health of your children, the health of your organization uh, depends on having a few of those critical, crucial conversations that you don't want to have and they don't want you to have with them. I mean, if you think back through where the dysfunction started at the last place you worked, could it not be traced back to a conversation that just never happened? There's a toxic culture there. Why? Because somebody won't address it. There's an elephant in the room. Everybody knows the elephant in the room. And you wonder and you gossip and you ask the question, how come nobody says anything? How come the boss won't say anything about it? How come nobody will call this person out for that? Uh, if you think about a marriage that is struggling, why is it struggling? Because there's a conversation that you just haven't had. And whether it takes going to counseling to have that conversation or just a night where you just put it all out there and you just finally discuss it. I've had this conversation multiple times with couples. And I'll talk with one, and they'll tell me their side of the story. I'll talk with the other one. They'll tell me their side of the story. And I, and I look at both of them, and I say, you all both need to talk about this. And they look at me like, oh, no, we don't. Why? Well, it's It's strange. You've got a marriage that you don't even want to be in, but you won't talk because you're afraid that if you have that talk, then you won't be married anymore. Just let that simmer for a second. Do you see how ridiculous that is? I don't want to be married anymore because of this issue, but I'm afraid if I talk about this issue, we won't be married anymore. What do you have to lose? Really? What do you have to lose? You're in a marriage you don't want to be in. Have the conversation. It'll solve that problem right away. They'll leave. Then you won't be in that marriage anymore. Problem solved. Or maybe, just maybe, you'll have that conversation. You'll deal with the problem, and all of a sudden, you'll find you're in a marriage now you want to be in. And so these conversations that we have, uh, and it could be, um, you know, of course, between two spouses when there's an issue that's come up, a chronic issue or chronic miscommunication, uh, could be talking to somebody who's a friend of yours or somebody you work with who's behaved in some way that's offensively or said something that's offensive. Uh, could be confronting a roommate. Uh, remember back when you had roommates? Some of y'all are in the roommate stage. It could be dishes that are left out, clothes that are left out, food that's, that's taken. Um, you just have to have that conversation. I don't care if you take one of my sodas, just don't take the last one. I still have that conversation with my kids. Like someday you're going to have a roommate. Roommate rule number one, never take the last one right? I mean, is that just basic, right? Clean up after yourself. You have to have that conversation. Some of y'all people leave notes. And it does, it's not a note that says we need to talk. It just says dishes need to be done. Mm, no, no, no. Have that conversation. Um, it could be challenging a leader who's not leading well. How fun is that conversation to call your boss out or somebody who outranks you? Uh, it could be talking to a friend who hasn't kept their commitment. Or maybe a friend who owes you money. Not fun conversations to have. Uh, how about talking to your in-laws about interfering? 
How about disciplining a teenager? I mean, you think about all of these things, we almost giggle about them because we've been there, we've avoided it. We don't have that conversation. If you think about uh, these conversations that need to have, the whole concept of this, we need to talk. Those moments in life are unavoidable, yet we still find some way to avoid them, right? We find some way just to, to, to do something else other than have that confrontation. Like, for instance, one of the things that we typically do is instead of talking to the person, we talk to some other person. So instead of talking to our spouse, we talk to a friend. Instead of talking to a friend, we talk to another friend. Instead of talking to our boss or a coworker about the issue, we talk to some other coworker about the issue. As a matter of fact, we'll talk to all the other coworkers in the entire office except for the one that we have a problem with. Why? Well, a couple things. One is we seek out validation and affirmation over, conf- uh, over confrontation, right? It's, it's fun to talk to somebody else. Can you believe what she said? Isn't that offensive? I thought that was offensive. You think that was offensive? Yeah, it was offensive. We all agree it was very offensive. Well, why don't you confront them about it? Well, I just don't know. They're not the kind of person you can talk to, you know. So what did you just do? You put it on them for the reason why you won't have the confrontation. Why? Because you'd rather be validated by your friends who tell you, yes, it was offensive, but nothing's ever changing. Now, the problem with that is, is that you feel like as if you've solved a problem, but have you solved anything? No. Have you actually created a bigger problem than what you originally had? Yes, because now, instead of it being between you and, give me a name that I can pick on. (laughs) Laura, perfect. Now, instead of you having a problem with Laura, now everybody in the office has a problem with Laura, right? And everybody knows you have a problem with Laura. And now it's gotten far bigger than it originally was. The other thing that's wrong is, is that you vented it out, and so some of the things that you really had to get off your chest and you really had to say, you've gotten them all off your chest, and now I feel better now. But why? You haven't done anything. So that's the affirmation and the validation that you've sought out instead of the confrontation. And so what you've actually done is, I don't know, sometimes people call that, there's a word for this, it's hard to remember, what is it? It's, oh, it's gossip, that's what it is. (laughs) Gossip, that's where you're telling somebody else about your problem who's powerless to do anything about your problem, right? You should be having the talk. You should be sending the text that says, we need to talk, but instead, what do you do? Oh, Kathy, we gotta talk. You won't believe what Laura did to me. No, no, no. You need to send a message to Laura that says, no, we need to talk. For those of you watching at home, there's a Laura sitting on the front row. Um, Other times what we do is we just stuff it down. And we convince ourselves it's the Christian thing to do to avoid the confrontation. Because, you know, it doesn't sound very Jesus-like to be mean and have that kind of a talk. I don't know what Jesus you've been reading about or, or studying, but he was confrontational, when he needed to be confrontational. Now, he spoke the truth in love. How to do it, we're going to talk about next week. That's going to be a a how-to is going to be next week. Uh, This morning, I really just want to focus in on the the series, We Need to Talk. Let's just focus on the fact that, yes, you need to talk. There's a need to need to talk at some point. Now, sometimes people will look at the Proverbs and they say, well, you know, Proverbs 19.11, it says that a person's wisdom will yield patience, but it's one's glory to overlook an offense. So I'm just going to overlook it. Now, what that's talking about is, is don't be petty. The wisdom there is don't be petty. Not everything is a we need to talk, okay? You gave me a, a look, and I didn't think it was very polite. We need to talk. You cleaned up the dishes, but I saw a few crumbs left. We need to talk. Right? At some point, he just says, you know, just wash the sink out. Just go on with your day. You don't need to talk about everything. Not everything is a we need to talk moment. And some of you have people in your life where everything, it's go time. 
everything is a we need to talk. Everything has to be discussed and replayed and gone over and over and over again. And that's where Solomon just says, you know, it's, it, it's, it's to your pride, to your glory. It's to God's lovingly you know, smile upon you when somebody does the slightest little thing or cuts you off in traffic. You don't have to then go speed up and cut them off or drive up and just give them the look, right? You don't need to do that. You just overlook the offense. Or other people go over to Jesus and say, well, Jesus said to turn the other cheek, right? You know, they, they were offensive. What they said wasn't right. And this has been going on a while, but I'm just going to turn the other cheek. That has nothing to do with this. That's nothing to do with this at all. If you read the, the context of it, it's about revenge. It's about get back. It's about somebody who has been demeaning and insulting. And he's basically saying, don't demean them and insult them back. It has nothing to do with a situation where you need to talk. We need to sit down with somebody. Now, turn, turn the other cheek. Don't return insult for insult. But sometimes you need to also look at them and go, what was that all about? That's very different than, than striking them back on their cheek. That's his, his whole issue in that passage. Now, if you read through the scriptures, you're going to find a lot of confrontations. Uh, you'll find in the Old Testament. You'll find them in the New Testament. Uh, you'll find Moses walking up and calling out people. Uh, you'll find God getting in people's face and calling out people. Uh, you'll find prophets on behalf of God coming in and saying, what were you thinking? What are you doing? You need to get this right. Uh, there's actually whole books of the Bible which are about nothing but the need to have a confrontation. Uh, Philemon is, is a book where Paul is writing to Philemon saying, hey, I need to talk to you about this. Onesimus is coming back. I want to talk about how this is all going to go down when he gets there. Uh, another couple of the Bible, books of the Bible I want to focus on this morning is Titus, though. Uh, Paul, I'll try to give you a little bit of background. Uh, Paul was called by God to basically spread the gospel. Uh, although he wasn't one of the 12 disciples, Judas kind of vacated the spot for obvious reasons, which opened up a spot for an opening in the 12, and it seems as though God has appointed Paul to take on that mantle. If you look through the book of Acts, God calls Paul to become one of the apostles, a messenger for him alongside the other, 12, or the other 11 disciples. And Paul goes around setting up churches and telling people about God all over the world, and what he would do is he would leave people there in charge of the churches that he started. And one of those guys is a guy named Titus. And Titus is a pastor on the island of Crete. And if you've ever heard somebody called a Cretan, anybody familiar with a Cretan? He's pastoring a church full of Cretans, literally. It's the church that got the name, or we get the name Cretans from. As a matter of fact, in this passage, uh, you'll even see this, where this word comes from. Uh, and what Paul is doing is he's writing to Timothy saying, there's a lot of stuff in your church you need to call out. The whole letter is about how, how Paul is telling Titus, you've got to confront this stuff. You, you can't just consider yourself a good leader by being a nice guy. See, often we think that, that the Christian thing is just to be a nice guy. And is there anything nice about confronting? Well, it doesn't feel nice. They think I'm a mean person for doing it. I don't feel very Jesus-like when I do it, so I'm just going to be a nice guy or be a Christian or, or I want to be liked as a parent or I don't want to create conflict in my marriage and I'll be seen as the one who's, you know, the difficult one if I bring this up. We all tell ourselves that's what it means to be a Christian, but if you look at what the Bible actually shows, sometimes God's saying, no, you need to do it. This has to be done. This whole letter is about Paul writing to Timothy and here's what he says. Um, this is in the context. In chapter one, he's talking about what the role of a pastor is. Uh, and now, in, in Titus's situation, his setting this is his role as a pastor, and what you see is the outflow of this or the things as a pastor you need to do. Now, you could take this same principle. There's a principle here of you are a leader in charge of a group of people, and as a leader in charge of a group of people, this is something that has to be done. 
Now, as a parent, you are in charge of your children. And these kind of things have to be done. At work, you are in charge of the culture of, your, of, of, of where you work. You are in charge of maybe some people. This has to be done. In a marriage, the two of you looked at each other and said, I am responsible for you from this day forward. I also tell people, when I do pre-marriage counseling, one of the questions I ask, I said, are, are, are you all going to invite anybody to your wedding? By the way, if I ever ask a question in these situations, there's a reason, all right? These aren't just, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to have it. I said, I said, why do you want people there? I don't know, to celebrate. So we do a lot of things we don't think about. I said, do you realize that when you're inviting somebody to your wedding, what you're basically, what you're doing is you're inviting somebody to say, I want you to be a witness of the commitment I am making, of the promise that I'm making, and if I ever fail to keep this commitment or promise, you have every right to call me out on it. I'm inviting you into the, com- to the, to the commitment and the promise I'm making. Now, if you don't want anybody getting up in your business when you walk out on this, then don't have anybody at your wedding. You guys can just go up to the courthouse, let your wedding be governed by the state of Virginia and nobody else, and do it on, on the side there. And then that way, whenever you guys decide you don't want to do it, you just deal with it as far as the state of Virginia goes, and nobody can say anything about it. Have at it. Now, people do that anyway, but if you want me to show up at your wedding, and then I also tell them, now as a pastor, if you want me to be there, if you want me as a pastor to be there, what you're also saying is I want God to be ruler over this too. And I'll call you out if you fail to live up to this commitment as far as the parameters of what God's word is. So you're actually inviting people to come in to have a we-need-to-talk conversation when you invite somebody to your wedding. Just throwing that out there. So he says, now, Timothy, as as a pastor, as a leader, you must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. So his job as a pastor is to teach God's word. And so you must do that. You can't shirk back from that. You can't not do that. What is the responsibility you've been given in your role, either in marriage or as a parent or at work? What is the responsibility that's given to you? For Timothy, it was to teach God's word. He goes on and he says this, um, uh, so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Listen in this passage, the number of times he calls out uh, Timothy's need to refute, get in somebody's face, have that conversation. So he starts off and he says, you need to teach so you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. We love the encouraging part. The refute part, not so much. I was having a conversation this past week. Uh, years ago, I was talking with a, a pastor that I highly respect. I, I've learned more from, from him probably than any other pastor. And he was getting old in years, and shortly, it was shortly before his retirement. And I was talking about issues and struggles I was having with, with some of you people. And <laughs> I was going to say with my church, but let's just be honest. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I just want to pastor a church full of healthy people. I don't want all those problems in my church. I remember listening to it, thinking to myself, well, then you're not a pastor. Like, 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 what is a church if it's not a place for unhealthy people to come in? And I think Jesus said something similar. What do he say? It's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. It's like a doctor going, oh, more sick people. I didn't go into medicine to deal with people who are sick. I went into it so I could buy a yacht. <laughs> no. And I remember having that conversation, thinking to myself, then quit being a pastor. For God's name, that's, that's what the whole, that's what you do, right? 
I got to tell you, though, I was young when I thought that. No, I still believe that and I still think that. But now at least I have more sympathy and understanding for where he was coming from. Because week after week, day after day, the job of encouraging is fun. I love preaching on Sunday morning. That's like, I, I love this. This is like my favorite part of the week. I wish this is all I had to do. Really, I really wish, wish it was. I wish I could like do what some of those TV preachers do where you live in like California, you get on your private jet, you fly somewhere else, you preach on the weekend, and then you fly back to your, to your mansion. I would love that. I mean, who wouldn't, right? This is so edifying for me to stand up here and speak and have all you all listen, right? It's wonderful. And I can encourage you and tell you this is what God wants you to do and encourage you on that path. The part of ministry I don't like so where somebody calls me up and this says, hey, hey, we've got a problem. And it's a, not a we need to talk, but it's you need to go talk to someone. That's not, a, that's not the fun part of the job. It's just not. I don't like that part. And I can understand after, you know, I'd only been in ministry when I had that conversation with him probably like five, ten years. He'd been doing it somewhere close to 40. And I can see how after 40 years, of refuting and rebuking and correcting and calling out and having hard conversation after hard conversation after hard conversation. At some point, it wears you down, doesn't it? And he was ready for retirement. And you knew he was ready for retirement when he got to the point where he said, I don't want to have the talk anymore. And you got to be honest with yourself and say, if I'm not willing to have the talk, then I can't be in the position of leadership anymore because it comes with the leadership. It comes with the mantle. Now, there are some jobs you can retire from. There's some you can't, right? You can't look at your marriage and go, I just don't want to have the talk anymore. You don't get that option. You can't look at your kids and the way they're acting a fool and go, oh, I'm just not going to parent anymore. You can't do it, right? You want to. You wish you could, but you can't. You don't, you don't retire as a parent, ever. You don't retire as a spouse, ever, until, until they pass away. You know, until the marriage is ended. You, you don't get that opportunity. And, and Paul's looking at, at Titus and he's saying, this comes with the job. And that say, that's why they pay you the big bucks, even if you're not getting paid big bucks. It's like, you know, that's why, that's why your name's on the door. And that's what he's saying to, to, to Titus. He's saying, you have to encourage others, but also you got to refute those who oppose it. And then he, expels it, he spells it out. He says, four, and here's why. There's many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcised group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it this way. Like, like listen, you locals know everybody. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And this saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in the faith. So that's, that's the job. You know, let's just kind of break down some of these things. Says, um, notice he says refute, they must be silenced, and then he ends it off with rebuke. So in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end, he starts off with refute. By the way, it's the same Greek word as rebuke. So he basically says rebuke, silence them, rebuke. You've got to put an end to this. You've got to put a stop to this. This cannot continue any longer. It must be silenced. It must be snuffed out. You can't overlook it. You can't just sweep it under the rug. This has to be addressed. You've got to call it out. Now, the word rebuke, 
when you hear the word rebuke, especially in church, it, it almost just comes into, I rebuke you in the name of the Lord. It, it just comes off as this, I don't know, oh, I just pictured this really overweight, sweaty, fundamentalist, denominational preacher who's up there in a hypocritical manner just rebuking all of the, you know, the classic sin moment life, you know, issues in a very offensive, judgmental sort of way. But a rebuke is all about pointing out truth for the purpose of correction. Pointing out truth in the face of error for the purpose of correction. Uh, as a matter of fact, when uh, Tim, or when Paul's telling, Timothy's got the same issue, by the way. If you go over, to the, Paul writes a letter to, uh, to two different pastors. One's a Timothy and one's a Titus, and they're right there together in your Bible. If you go over to the Timothy letter, he even tells him, he says, listen, all scriptures, this is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says, all scripture is useful for teaching. But then he says, it's also useful, he says, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Four things it's useful for. Three of them deal with this issue, right? Teaching, that's the fun part. That's the exhorting. That's what we're doing right now. I'm just getting to teach. But it's also useful for rebuking, correcting, and training. Uh, rebuking is where you're calling out somebody, and you got to get in their face because it's confrontational. That's a rebuke. Correcting is where you are sort of coaching or guiding. No, no, no. I think you want to go a little bit left. I don't think that's working out so much. You might want to work on that. And then the training, um, that's like where it's repetition. How many times do you have to tell a three-year-old to clean the room and how to clean the room and show them again and again and again and again and again? And sometimes you'll see that the Bible is teaching the same thing over and over and over and over again. Why? Because it's useful for training. Uh, there was one comedian once who said, I don't understand why Christians go back every week after week after week to hear the same message. Didn't you hear it the first time? No. No, we didn't. That's why we come back week after week after week. And at whatever point you can go, got it, you don't need to come anymore. At whatever point you get to the point where you are just nailing every single one of God's precepts and God's commands, by all means, stay home, go about your merry way. But it doesn't happen because before God, we're all three-year-olds. Because of our sinful nature, we're no different. And so we need the training. We need the correcting. We need those times where we're just, you know, one or two degrees off and go, no, 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 I, I, you need to, you did the right thing but probably in the way that it was delivered probably wasn't quite the right way. So let's just coach that and put that back over. But there's also times where there's an absolute rebuke. You're going in the wrong direction, and we need to turn this thing around. So we say to Titus, it's useful for the rebuke. And he says, all right, so what do we got? We got many rebellious people. Uh, rebellious is, is where somebody has just gone in a sinful direction. I don't care. I don't want any leadership. I don't want God to be over my life. I'm going to do my own thing. That has to be called out. At work? Marriage, parenting, it has to be called out. You're going in a wrong direction. And if this continues down this path, it's going to destroy everything in its path. You need to make a U-turn. This needs to stop. Rebellious people is where somebody says, I don't want anybody over me. I don't want anybody telling me what to do, which is the heart of our sinful nature, by the way. And I'm going to go do my own thing. Uh, there's a great scene. Um, I've used it multiple times, which is part of the reason why I didn't show it this morning. Um, maybe I should have. Uh, it's, it's from uh, The Family Man. Where Nicholas Cage, he's kind of going back and he, he gets to like live an alternate reality. And in this alternate reality, he goes to see what life would be like if he was married to the girl of his dreams. And so while he's living this alternate reality, married to the girl of his dreams, there's this neighbor who's flirting at him. And he's thinking to himself, well, I'm living in this dream alternate reality, so I can do whatever I want, right? So he goes to one of his friends. He's like, hey, can you give me the number of the girl who lives next door? Because, you know, I want to, 
hook up with her. And this guy looks at him and he says, you can't do this. You're an idiot. You've got the girl of your dreams and you're about to go make a horrible decision. Do not do this. What's he saying? You're in a rebellious mindset where you're wanting to go a direction you should not go. Do not go there. And as a friend, you have the responsibility to rebuke that, to come and say, you can't go in this direction any longer. As your father, I can't let you make this decision. You've got to turn this around. You cannot do this. I've got to be willing to risk the relationship when somebody is going down a path that's going to destroy them and everybody else around them. You have to. You have to risk the relationship when it comes to out-and-out rebellion. Uh, So he says, rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those among the uncircumcised group. Uh, The issue here is uh, they've corrupted the gospel. They've told people that, well, God doesn't just love you and forgive you uh, because of his love for you. Rather, you have to jump through a series of hoops to make sure you're in a kind of a place where God can love you and do it, you know, and, and forgive you. And so it's, that's sort of a simplified way of basically saying they were telling him, you have to keep all the Jewish commands and, and uh, traditional practices in order for you to have a relationship with God. Bottom line is, when you have bad theology, you make a lot of bad decisions. Not just in church. When you have bad theology, you make a lot of bad decisions. After all, who created this world in your body and, and how you should live? God. And when you misunderstand your relationship with God, it's going to lead to a lot of bad thinking. You're going to think to yourself, well, I'm unlovable. Nobody could love me for who I am. That's bad theology. You're going to think to yourself, I'm not made the way I should be. I don't look the way I should. I don't have the talents the way I, the way I should. If I was ever going to be useful for anything... I would have been made differently. What you're basically saying is God messed up when he made me. You're denying the fact that God, the reality says you are God's workmanship. You're crafted just as he wanted you to be. For everything I have purpose for you, you're exactly how I want you to be. Yeah, but I wanted to be a rock star. How come I can't sing? Because that's not what God made you to be. I told you last week, I want to still play drums. I don't have rhythm. (laughs) I just can't. Right? When you're teaching, if somebody is teaching and telling you things that are not true about God, that needs to be called out. I can't tell you how many times people have gone through a tragic event and walk away thinking that God's judging them for something. Uh, I remember uh, working at a preschool years ago at at another church. Uh, I was just a church member. And the pastor had errantly taught out of James chapter 5 that if you pray in faith, God will heal you. It's not what the passage is talking about. It's talking about a spiritual issue, a spiritual sin. That's where the healing is. Look at the context again. Okay, look at the context. It's, the word is sudzo, which means save. It's not the word for healing. It's not a word for physical healing. It's a word for saving. When Jesus heals lepers, one comes back. The one that came back was sudzo. Okay, when, when the woman reaches out to touch the hem of Jesus' garment and she's healed from her issue... After she, Jesus turned around and says, who touched me? Then it says she was saved. In other words, it's a word denoting they're back in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, not physical healing. And so he had taught one morning that the prayer offered in faith will make you physically healed. And I'm listening to, to two other people work in the nursery that morning, and she, I hear this girl say, yeah, my husband's got, this, he's got some back issue, like a ruptured disc or something. She goes, I really think he needs surgery, but... If we go to the doctor, that would just be a sign that we don't have faith that God's going to heal him. I put up with a lot of bad teaching at that church. (laughs) That was the point where I called out the pastor. 
Because you know how hard it is to have gone to seminary, to have served as a pastor. I was in a season of my life where I had to care for Melissa and couldn't pastor for a season. And so I was working as a handyman, doing construction work, and just attending a church. I listened to a lot of bad teaching, but when I heard that, I couldn't let it go anymore. Because bad theology will lead to really bad life decisions. And if you don't know and understand who God is, eventually it's going to mess up your life. And I can let a few things go. But when it gets to the point where you're not going to go see a doctor because you have a major ailment, we're going to have a conversation. And that was not a political talk on anything going on right now. All right, moving on. Um, I know you people. I know what you're going to do, a bunch of cretins. All right. Um, he says, they must be silenced. Why? Because they're disrupting whole households. When there's an issue where it's disrupting your house, your marriage, your workplace, that's a time where the rebuke has to come. So you have this question, well, how do I know when to overlook it versus how do I know when when I need to step in? If it is causing the destruction of your family, of your marriage, or where you work, you have to step in. You can't just sweep this under the rug. That's the question. Is this going to lead to the destruction of, of, of our marriage? Then we need to talk. Is this going to lead to the destruction of my child? If they go down this path and continue this line of thinking, continue this behavior, is this going to set them up for success or ultimate failure in life? Then we need to have the talk. If you're going to treat a girl like that, that's not going to work well for you in life. If you're going to handle your finances like that, son, that's not going to work well for you in life. If this is how you're going to you know, walk away from your commitments, that's not going to work well in life. That is going to destroy your life. We need to have that talk. We need to have it out. What's this doing to our office place where we work? If it's destroying us and we have a toxic work culture and people are quitting left and right, we need to talk, right? So he says it's um, disrupting whole, household, whole households by teaching things down there. So stuff's going on. Um, and they're doing it for dishonest gain. Uh, is there corruption going on? You've got to call out the corruption. Then he says, one of his own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. His point there with that last statement, he says, recognize you're in an environment, you're in an environment where the people around you aren't as perfect as you want them to be. You know, it's really easy to assume the best when you don't want to have the talk, right? Oh, they'll figure it out. Oh, it'll work itself out. Oh, we'll just give it time and then it'll be okay. And what's Paul, what's, what's his purpose in this, in this moment? He's trying to let them know at the core, very nature of the people that you're working with is not something that's going to get better over time. At their core is liars, evil brutes, in other words, they're violent, and lazy. That doesn't get better over time. What he's basically saying is recognize there's a sinful nature. And sinful nature doesn't change unless it's rebuked. You're raising sinners. You're married to a sinner. You work with sinners. That's the reality of it. Sinners don't get better over time by neglect. They just don't. You have to have the conversation. You have to, you have to talk about it. He says, uh, this saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in faith. Last thing I want to point out is rebuke them sharply. You ever had a conversation where you walk away from it thinking you've addressed it, but you haven't really addressed it? 
well, I was just kind of thinking that maybe, you know, it wouldn't be a good idea if you went out to lunch and went away to business meetings with that girl that you've been attracted to and not, you know, talk to them late at night. I was just thinking, you know, huh? (laughs) Yeah, babe, there's nothing to worry about. Okay, good. I'm glad we talked. And then later, your accountability partner, your friend says, hey, did you talk to him about that? Yeah, yeah, we talked last night. Paul's saying, be clear about this. When you've walked away, let there be no ambiguity. Now, that's why in business, if it wasn't for the legal departments, I probably wouldn't be pushed to do it. There are certain times as an employer, you have to have that conversation. And then what's the dreaded thing you have to do after the conversation? Anybody know? Document. I've got to send an email or a letter that you have to sign and just say, this afternoon, we could discuss the following things. If the following things aren't met, these are the steps that will be taken. I want to make sure that we're both aware of this and there's clarity on this. Please sign and date. Now, when you get that, there's no ambiguity about that, right? You can't come back later and go, I didn't know. That's why he says rebuke them sharply. Not rebuke them vaguely. Not rebuke them generally. It's very specific. It's very pointed, sharply, very pointed. So there's no ambiguity about what we just talked about. Rebuke them sharply. Now I'm going to add one last, last thing to this. Let's go back over to Jesus. Um, over in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus talks about confrontations and rebukes. I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to make a statement that we always overlook in reading the passage. All right. If your brother or sister, this is Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, the classic confrontation passage in Scripture. Jesus talking here, he says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take two or three others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, by the way, take it to the church. That's when I get the phone call that says you need to have this talk. See, it's part of my job. All right. So, who's committed the sin? Who's committed the sin? This isn't a trick question. There's a trick question coming, but that wasn't it. Who's committed the sin? Person you have to talk to. Your brother or sister, okay? If, If somebody you know that you're close to, you have a relationship with, uh, brother or sister implies that there is a, some sort of communal, committed type of relationship, whether it's a place that you work, place with family, uh, brother or sister, you guys are sort of in the same family uh, in some sense, right? You're in the, part of the same organizational structure. If they've sinned, go and point out their fault. Okay. That's saying you need to have the conversation of the we need to talk. Who's telling you to do this? God, Jesus, right? Jesus is saying... You need to have the we-need-to-talk conversation. If you don't do it, who is also sinning? That's the thing we always overlook. Right? We're so focused on their sin, somebody really needs to say something about that. 
I think you should go to it. I think we should all gossip about it and then have somebody else go and address it. I think we should all grow as a group right now. Anything short of you having the we-need-to-talk conversation, you're now joining in with the company of sinner. And I tell you, one of the things I've also had to do is when somebody comes to me with a problem where they haven't done the we-need-to-talk, they're surprised and shocked when they're the one who gets rebuked in that conversation. They come to me thinking, oh, we're going to rebuke Laura, and I'm going to sick you on them, Steve. And you know who, you know who gets rebuked? Yeah. One of the questions I ask is, why are you bringing this to me? Have you talked with them yet? Then why are you bringing this to me? Well, you know, just, you know, I, I want to, no, 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 no. You have the responsibility to talk to them about this, not me about this. I'm step two or three or four down the list. Right now, you're in error because you haven't done what you're supposed to do. So, it's biblical, it is right, and it is commanded. I'll just give you one little thing, though. If you don't do this well and you're not good at it, just this one time, wait a week until we talk about how to do it next week. (laughs) You with me on that? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love, and I thank you for your grace for all of the times that you've sent somebody into my life for a we-need-to-talk moment. Father, where would we be if it wasn't for the talks that our parents had that took courage on their part? Where would we be, Father, without the friends who spoke truth into our life to rebuke us when we rebelled? Where would we be, Father, without pastors and teachers who've come into our life to correct doctrinal error where we just don't fully understand your relationship with us and who we are? Where would we be, Father, without a husband or a wife to go through life with and call us out when we're making choices that are destructive to ourselves and to our family? Father, bring us to the point of maturity where we can thank you for the hands and the feet and the mouth that brings your word of rebuke, that brings your word of correction that comes alongside for coaching and for training. Father, give us a humble spirit to be able to willingly accept a rebuke that would come into our life. But then beyond that, Father, help us take up the mantle of leadership to speak truth into someone's life, to give the rebuke, to silence the talk as pointed and as sharply as it requires. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.